The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. So that briefing is happening at the moment about Tabo Bester's escape. Let's go over to our eyewitness news reporter, Babalo Ndenze. Tell us what's happening there, Babalo. Hi, good afternoon, Jane. Yes, indeed, um, the, the, the meeting um, ended not too long ago um, because G4S members opted not to proceed any further without G4S. Um, they say G4S is really, um, you know, um, culprit number one and should be the first one giving, you know, um, information to the committee before the department or the ministry. And so the chairperson, Mulani Makwanisha, read the letter from G4S to the members where they um, request to be rather summoned officially to parliament, which really outraged most of the members, including the minister and his deputy, particularly Olomisa. And, you know, DAMP, Kenneth Batenbach, also not holding back there, you know, expressing her anger at the company for showing contempt to parliament and also not forgetting the victims of Bester's crimes. Take a listen, Jane. These are not victims of, 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 of flimsy crimes. They're victims of rape. The most harrowing thing there is. And, and the person that they testified against and put in prison is out there and they were not even informed. They have no form of protection. It leaves me feeling totally, totally outraged. And I would suggest to you that we consider very, very seriously as a committee not proceeding today. It makes very little sense to me and it makes almost a mockery of this procedure. Gosh, she certainly sounds as angry as the rest of the country, right? I mean, do we know anything more about why G4S didn't bother to to rock up? And what do we think that government's going to do with this information? We know that they were embarrassed, but hopefully they'll be doing a lot more than expressing their embarrassment. Yes, uh, yes, indeed. Um, the, the legal representative of G4S was at the meeting. As much as the company claims they were not invited, mm-hmm. um, they did send their lawyer there, you know, a man called um, Ben Winks, um, you know, from Weber Wenzel, from Weber Wenzel um, representing the, he says there he has a limited mandate, so he can't really give too much information to the committee. But he did basically reiterate what was in the letter that you know they have these you know um, confidentiality obligations, you know, as a company. Uh, but so they need to be officially summoned to Parliament, you know, by using the Powers and Privileges Act, so that they can be you know receive the necessary protections, you know, so uh, before they come and also get time to prepare for the meeting. They claim in their letter that they need to prepare and would prefer them to be invited, you know, to give a, a briefing after the Easter weekend, which would be next week. Um, so was obviously not happy about that, but they have, the committee rather will request the speaker, Masibir to, you know, send official summons. Um, and it, I think it will only be after the, res- the response for that summons will we know at the exact date when the meeting will happen, Jane. So I should imagine a lot of frustration around. I mean, we heard it there. And uh, and questions still abound. I mean, where on earth is Besta? Where on earth is Besta? Yes, that's definitely one of the, the, the key questions. Um, as much as um, a G4S, I guess, uh, won't be able to answer that, that specific question, but they will have to answer questions on how he managed to escape. And there you know, are also questions about the burnt body that was in one of the cells and who assisted him and everyone else was involved. Um, but, you know, I think the Minister of Justice and Correctional Services, Ronald Lamola, might be able to give the country, you know, an, an idea of where any investigations or, you know, if there is any developments in trying to catch Tabo Pesta. So we wait. We continue to wait. Babalo Ndenze, thank you. 
The Midday Report. So the EFF is leading a protest to Uganda's High Commission in Pretoria against Uganda's LGBTQIA plus discriminatory bill. We know that our government, with many others, has been quiet. Uh, it's 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 hard to fathom why only two members of the ruling party voted against that bill. Let's go over to Alpha Ramoshwana, who is there, has been keeping an eye on the protest. And, and tell us what their aim is and how it's playing out, Alpha. Well, good afternoon, Jane. Well, today, like you said, the EFF is marching to um, the Uganda High Commission in Pretoria. And of course, this is on the recent passing of the anti uh, gay bill in the country by the country's parliament. So the EFF is actually joined by, you know, a number of uh, LGBTQIA plus activists who are here to also raise concerns over the passing of the bill. But one of the demands that the EFF will be, um, I'm, I'm calling for today is, is for the president, President Museveni, uh, the president of Uganda, not to sign this bill into law because, of course, if this bill is signed, you know, people could be subjected to the death penalty or harsh punishment or harsh uh, prison sentences uh, for just merely being, you know, gay or identifying as gay. So the EFF will also be calling for the president of that country not to sign this bill. But another thing also, uh, uh, um, it, the, 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 the EFF is here to just give its support. It's saying that Uganda is one of the countries that supported South Africa back then during the apartheid uh, uh, um during the apartheid, and it's only going to cast this support to Uganda, and it's also called for the ANC to join in this fight against, you know, this anti-gay bill. But let's take a listen to what EFF Member of Parliament, Yoliswa uh, Yako, had to say about this. It's actually interesting that the ANC is very silent on this, um, because they also have an LGBTQ desk, which should be very outspoken. They should be the ones challenging Uganda, coming from an African point of view, to say that we cannot allow one of us to oppress others. Um, you know, um, other African countries, when we were under apartheid, stood for us and they advocated for us. They put the, their self, themselves on the line for us, you know, in terms of even the international um, stature. Um, so why is it that we're silent on this? Um, it speaks to how the ANC is very deaf towards the needs of others and is very, very much focused on itself and is, is very myopic in how it approaches the, the African continent, how it approaches worldview in general. Julius Malema was quoted at some stage saying, you know, what if Museveni is gay and he hasn't discovered it and he can discover it now at an advanced age? Um, uh, uh, you know, the, the mind boggles, but you just wonder what sort of relationship um, we, we, we are waiting for, what sort of outcome the EFF is waiting for. How far are they going to push this? The Midday Report. Let's go over to Tabisa Goba. The summer is to brief the media or has been briefing the media on corruption at the city of Johannesburg Human Settlements Department. Good morning to you. Good afternoon to you, rather. What have they been saying? Good afternoon, Jane. Well, I can tell you, Jane, that the provincial secretary of the South African Municipal Workers Union, which is Samu, um, Paul Tladignani, has made some very, very serious allegations um, around corruption and also around uh, the people at the Johannesburg uh, municipality. So he's saying that um, a number of these um, human uh, or housing projects that have been planned by the city, you know, um, some of them have been inflated um, in uh, in prices, and that uh, you know some of them have also been um, you know what is reported on the municipal books is not what is reported 
um, on the ground. So saying that maybe, you know, they've built a house here, but obviously um, when you go to that area, you don't see any houses being built. So, you know, um, he's implicated a lot of uh, people uh, within the municipality. And I will say that, Jane, you know, we do also have to be careful here. That's why I'm not mentioning any names uh, because, you know, this, uh, we're still waiting for uh, Samu to present us with evidence and obviously do our, also our own reporting and background checks on getting um, responses from the municipality and the people implicated in this. Mm. And they're not going to leave it there. They also want to talk about the state of coalition governments in the province. And I mean, on all fronts, it seems to be getting worse, not better. Yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, you know, Samu um, represents about 60,000 uh, municipal workers in Gauteng municipalities. So, you know, they do have some sort of um, stakeholder um, you know, interest in what happens within the governing of the municipality. And I think what is key here is what the provincial secretary in Port Adinyane said, is that there's a lot of worker issues that have been presented um, to municipalities in terms of how they can work together to improve worker, uh, worker relations. However, with this changing of um, executive mayors, executive people, MNCs, it gets very difficult because they have to keep on explaining, you know, the same issues to different people while nothing is, is happening. And, you know, he is saying that, you know, if this does carry on, you know, there might be another massive uh, worker strike within um, Houting very soon. Thank you. The Midday Report. Good day, uh, Jane. Thank you so much for standing in for our friend uh, Mandy. I just wanted to comment about uh, this uh, G4S uh, disrespecting Parliament and sending uh, Wabawenzel uh, law firm. We, the Parliament should not be scared of, uh, of a law firm of Wabawenzel. We know how, how they operate. But uh, quite important is that uh, this type of pest is on the, on the run. You'll recall that in the UK when uh, this extremist guy was uh, hiding somewhere in the residential area, they went from street to street, house to house. They locked the airport, they shut or they locked down the area. Why in this country they can't do that with the, this case of uh, Tabo Best? Hi Jenny, shouldn't the EFF raise these issues through our parliament and then the parliament may may sanction the what you call the uganda M- ambassador to south africa and then they raise all these questions they raise all their concerns rather than rather than making a mockery just walking around the city i don't know i don't know david Thank you for getting in touch with us. It's always good to hear your voice notes on air. And I suspect in about 20 years' time, we'll switch on the TV or whatever it is that we're watching at that stage, and the suspended public protector will still be in the news. So the Section 194 committee has been meeting to decide how it will forward with the inquiry. So after the Office of the Public Protector withdrew Advocate Makwebani's legal funding, the Section 194 inquiry chairperson and Makwebani are having a go at each other. Let's listen to what they said. Entire support. Uh, Advocate um, Kwebane, I see you've raised your hand. Um, I'm going to hear you out, but I just want to explain this is a committee meeting. And uh, people who participate in it are members only. So I wouldn't want to entertain 
any other person except the members. It's a committee meeting. So I just want to indicate that that I see you've raised your hand. I cannot take it. It's, you'll have to find another way if you need to communicate with the chair. It is a committee meeting. I'm only allowing members to participate <laughs> in the meeting. I will look I've at that letter. Thank you. Letter. And it's not for oh. you only. It's for the committee. Oh, and thank evidence you. leaders are not members. I did not, I did not give you platform. Just mute here. You're not going to repeat that. Okay. This is a meeting of the committee. I've sent you but a letter. You, you are not a member unless you, you are. But you the are evidence leaders are not members. Just mute her. Just mute her. It's a committee meeting. You're completely out of order. And I'm not going to take that attitude from you. Never a dull moment in that case, is there? All right. Who's ever celebrating Easter? Well, it's just around the corner. We know it is sadly a time of, I can't say it loud enough, carnage on our roads. And it, it shouldn't be that, that case. So let's bring in uh, the EMS spokesperson, Robert Blaudzi, who's going to talk to us about the launch of the 2023 Easter safety campaign. Very good afternoon to you. What is the message this year? Good afternoon, Jamie, and afternoon to the listeners. Yes, we are here uh, in Woodmead to launch our Easter safety campaign together with the executive mayor and also the MNC of public safety. The message is clear and very simple is that Lumisinda uh, Vazako, as a motorist, fix your issues in terms of road uh, preparedness. You're going to be, uh, motorists will be taking you know, uh, long distances driving from outside Johannesburg or others will be coming in to say, we're encouraging them to make sure that they sort out their registration documents and make sure that their vehicles are roadworthy, uh, they are ready for the road. And also, we are also uh, aging our residents. Since now we know that it's a Easter period, most of our residents will be tempted to visit most of our river streams in the city who are normally conducting church rituals, you know, baptisms. Mm-hmm. So we're saying to them, uh, right now we already had uh, situations where uh, people have lost their lives while they're conducting rituals, baptism rituals. So we're saying that they must refrain from those activities like this. Uh, and also, uh, so that we can be able to prevent drowning incidents. And also, now that we have re- had reports uh, from the National Department of Health that uh, that uh, river stream along Jack's Cay in the area of this slope. We already have uh, reported uh, cholera outbreaks in that area. So we say our residents must refrain from this uh, activity so that we can be able to prevent the cholera outbreaks and also a drowning incident. And also the motorists to look after themselves as and when they are traveling to from one area to another during this Easter season. All right, so what sort of boots on the grounds, what sort of security do you have out there? How is it going to work? And what happens if people don't comply? Yes, uh, I think uh, my colleague uh, Kolani will give maybe further a brief in terms of uh, JMPD and the activities. But from our side as EMS, we've got all our safety fire stations throughout the city Mm. fully operational. We've got our specialized unit which responds to water-related emergencies on high alert. We've got our specialized unit 
which responds to motor vehicle accidents and any other uh, incidents which might occur throughout the city. Most of us didn't get a chance now to go on holidays uh, with the main aim of making sure that all the people of the city of Johannesburg, residents of the city of Johannesburg, and all those people who are visiting the city of Johannesburg, they can be able to enjoy their Easter holidays safely. How stressful a time is this for you? I mean, every year, whether it is, as you say, drownings or or people on the roads or people not complying, I mean, it seems that the numbers just get worse. Uh, Are we we geared up to tackle this? Yes, from our side, as a public safety uh, in the city of Johannesburg, yes, we are geared up. We've got all the boots on the ground, making sure that we cover all the regions with uh, uh, all the public safety officers on the ground. However, we still need our communities to work together. And we normally intensify our public education programs, our community outreach programs now, before we even get to this uh, uh, season, whereby we try and encourage our residents to look after themselves, be it motorists or any other residents, be it in our informal settlements or in our suburban area. Right now, we are in the middle of load shedding, so we still continue to encourage our residents to look after all those other heating devices which they might be using, you know, when they we have load shedding. Some they're using gases, some they're using paraffin salt, some they're using candles. So we need to make sure that all those items are looked after so that we can also prevent, uh, you know, fire incidents which might occur. So generally, in terms of safety, we are doing our best. Uh, to make sure that our communities out there are safe. And we always uh, uh, urge our residents out there to work with us so that we can be able to prevent, you know, incidents which might occur. Because we have taken a strategy to say if we empower our communities, we will be able to deal with most of the incidents which we respond to. And if you had a, a brief message, your moment now, what would it be? What's the message to all of us? Yeah, let's live beyond Easter. Uh, it doesn't matter the distance you're traveling to. Always remember to, you know, obey the rules of the road, you know, uh, respect other road users, and let's arrive alive to our various holiday destinations. We want to see you again after, you know, the Easter period being safe. Let's live beyond Easter. I like that. Robert Mulawuti, thank you very much. The Midday Report. Good afternoon, good afternoon to you and the team. Let's go you know you got a you got a serious serious problem within in that guy uh janji in that committee that that whole thing is gonna fall apart and it's going to be because of this guy janji he is so hell-bent as a chairperson you're supposed to be neutral he's so hell-bent to make um life difficult why is he doing that huh if if he was not sent there to do that what Clearly, you are standing to do that, and that that whole committee is gonna fall apart, and it's not gonna get anywhere because of the problem with the chairperson. I just listened to your audio you played uh, uh, regarding Advocate McKevin's, uh hearing. I'm shocked at how that chair is talking and addressing it. So unprofessional, so unacceptable, and. He just sounds so biased. Just be fair. Just be fair. You know? Just be fair. The way he addressed her, shocking. Very shocking. 
Thank you very much for that. As I said a little earlier, it certainly is divisive, isn't it? And uh, uh, it's <laughs> certainly not impassioned. No moment left unturned when it comes to tweaking those passion knobs. All right, let's talk about Numsa's threatened bus strike ahead of Easter weekend. That certainly winds people up as well, regardless of, of where you're sitting on that one. Let's bring in Numsa spokesperson, Pakamila Shlubi Majola. A very good afternoon to you. Why the strike? Good afternoon and good afternoon to your listeners. Uh, our members have been provoked into taking this drastic action because the employers in the bus passenger sector are refusing to engage on the demand for either medical insurance or a medical aid for our members. And this is why we find ourselves where we are today. Okay. And how likely are they to budge with the action and how extensive will your action be? Well, we certainly hope that they take it seriously because at the end of the day, um, it's commuters who are going to suffer. They will also suffer if their profits are affected as a result of this action. And we hope that they'll do the right thing. I mean, these are workers who on average are earning. Ah, uh, Pakimele, we seem to have lost you. Ah, okay. and, and, and we don't have to tell you about the state of our public hospitals. So this is essentially a burning demand. And we sincerely hope that employers in the sector will come back to the table and negotiate with us. Otherwise, unfortunately, there will be a strike uh, during the Easter weekend. And what is your message to those who will be affected by the strike if it does go ahead, those who desperately need to get around the country? We sincerely apologize for the inconvenience. We hope that um, they direct their anger towards the employers. We have been negotiating on this issue since January this year. And it's just unfortunate that the employers, Kobia and Sabia, just don't take this matter seriously. Um, and we urge them to come back to the table. It's not too late. In fact, we've already uh, issued a request to the National Bargaining Forum for an urgent meeting so that we can actually deal with this demand and hopefully come to an agreement um, before it is too late. Well, what are the members saying about this? How far are they prepared to push this? Our members have made it very clear that if we are not able to secure this in wage talks, they are willing to go on strike. So it really is up to the employers. The ball is in their court. All right, Pakamila Shlubi Majola, thank you very much for talking to us. We'll certainly be keeping an eye out on the strike. And if uh, you are to get the response that you need, what impact that's likely to have. The Midday Report. I mean, you've probably been hearing about the travel problems in and around the country. Cape Town is not immune to that. And we have finally had some developments there. The Cape Town to Nyanga line is open partially, not fully yet, but it's certainly the wheels are turning. It's going to make a, such a, an impact on commuters there who've been hit hard, hard in the pocket. Let's listen to what the WK Acting Regional Manager of Prasa, Raymond Maseko, said when he gave a heartfelt gratitude to the communities and stakeholders that made it possible to recover that line from Cape Town to Nyanga. Cape Townians understand how the central line connects the city of Cape Town, the CBD at Belleville, plus the industrial area at Greifantin. In the city of Cape Town, we live in central, it's called Metro Southeast. 
We live in Kailicha, we live in Nolungila, we live in Mitchell's Plain, Captain's Cliff. That's where people live. But that's not where we work. The industries are in Claremont, the industries are in Cape Town, they are in Dabeni, they are Pinelands. The industries are all the way to Clifantain in the north, Belleville CBD. We are working at Brackenfell and Stegland. We live in Central. So when we were trying to recover this service, we had to recover Cape Town to retreat all the way to Fishhook as well, from Cape Town, Belleville, all the way to Cryfontaine and take that line to Wellington. Now that we have recovered the industrial areas, we then started focusing all our energies and effort into recovering the central line. Because the people that need to go to those areas of work and also those areas of opportunities, South Africans. The poverty that you see at Langa, the poverty that you see at Philippi, it cannot be eradicated if somebody cannot access work opportunities. Last year, we were talking about the city of Cape Town, has created a lot of employment opportunities for law enforcement units. We were asking ourselves in Philippi, at Kaelicha, at Longkubela, how many of your neighbors are wearing the law enforcement, of, the law enforcement uh, uniform to go to Cape Town? Those opportunities are passing your neighbors because me as Prasa, I'm unable to bring, bring the train to you. In order to bring the train to you, help me. This is what the community of Langa did. They then said, We will shift and allow the train to go through. The first corridor that we recovered on the central line was from Cape Town through Langa to Belleville. That we recovered on the 26th of July. A rather emotional statement there about the state of affairs. And, and believe me, we are celebrating with all of you. Nothing better than being able to get to where you need to without having to break the bank. Let's bring in Prasa spokesperson Andiswa Makanda. A very good afternoon to you. So it's a pretty significant day today, isn't it? Tell us the status of the line and when it's going to be completed. Uh, good afternoon, Jane. Good afternoon to your listeners. Yes, it is quite um, a day today where we were officially launching the reopening of the Cape Town to Nyanga on the central line. I think a lot of people didn't think it would be possible to run trains on the central line because of the illegal occupation. But today we were marking the completion of phase one of central line, which is Cape Town to Langa, Langa to Nyanga. So the work that needs to happen now is phase two, which would be your Nyanga to Chris Hani, Captain's Clip, Kailicha side. And that's where we have um, the majority of the illegal occupation um, of the people that we need to relocate. However, we are confident that we'll be able to do some recovery in some sections on the central line as we work with the communities occupying the railway network. All right, a couple of things. How do you protect this line? We know that damage to infrastructure is one of the main reasons why it's taken so long to fix. And what happens to those commuters who've been moved off? Um, so there is a relocation plan that's currently um, underway um, with the Human Settlements Department and also the Housing Development Agency that are working also with the city of Cape Town to relocate um, the people living on the central line. And um, what's quite important and a priority is that we find alternative land um, for the people that will be relocated because Prasad did get an eviction order to evict the people living on the land, but also 
um, in terms of the PAI Act, they also need to get alternative accommodation. So um, that work is underway um, under the intergovernmental framework. But also um, to your other question on security, mm. we do have um, security on the ground. We've increased the capacity of security internal, but also working with independent contractors um, to, to, to beef up the security on the central line and the rest of um, the network that we've recovered in South Africa. So one of the key issues um, why the network was left vandalized and vulnerable is because of the cancellation of the security contracts that were found to be irregular by the Auditor General. And so the previous board, um, in, t- in trying to rectify the situation, um, cancelled those security contracts, and that's why the network was left vulnerable. However, we do have boots on the ground. We're working with the law enforcement. Um, we are also bringing technology uh, 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 to the rail network. So we have a comprehensive security plan that is put in place that we're going to implement in phases across the country. I mean, we're talking about more than 2,000 kilometers of rail network that needs to be protected. And so we are doing it and gradually as we recover the lines, we also implement our security plan and where we have implemented that integrated security strategy, we haven't had any incidences of theft and vandalism. Although people have been, uh, they have been attempts, um, we haven't had any incidences. Also, over and above that, we um, also um, installing anti-vandal clips. So even the real network that we are installing now, it comes with safety features so that it's, it's not easy for criminals um, to steal uh, the real network and, 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 and the tracks. Okay. I mean, it's sad that we've got to be celebrating just the opening of lines. I mean, they should be open and continuing. But anyway, that's where we are in this country. Tell us about some of the stories that you've heard about how it has changed people's lives, how it has improved people's lives. The fact that part of the, this line is now operational. I think um, part of the stories that we're hearing in particular this morning and also in all the other net um, uh, corridors that we've recovered is that people talk about how expensive it is to get around. Um, the mode of transport is expensive. Taxi fares are quite high, can't afford it. And so because we are essentially um, the, the, we used to be the backbone of transport, um, we're no longer the backbone of public transport. And so there was that gap where people were struggling um, um, financially because of um, this huge gap of not having um, the railways, uh, of not having trains. And so what we have been able to do is connect people to opportunities of work, um, to opportunities of of participating in the economy. And that is the role that we are playing, especially your working class people. They rely heavily on the railway network. And I mean, for our ticket prices, you're looking at 750 just from Cape Town to Nyanga, for example, which does not compare to what is being charged by other modes of transport. So people are really saving uh, a lot of money here. I mean, there was one commuter who said sometimes they need to choose between buying a loaf of bread or getting a, a taxi fare. So you can see the role that rail is playing um, because of the affordable um, mode of transport that we provide. Okay. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Congratulations. It is a big day. Andiswa Makanda, process spokesperson. The Midday Report. I have to disagree with the previous voice note. Um, he clearly told her that she had no platform to speak or raise options or raise uh, concerns or opinions. Um, 
you know, she must follow due process. And she continued to speak, even though he told her that she did not have the platform to do so. Him being the chair, all he did was exercise his powers to ensure that um, things went procedurally correctly. Um, and if we're going to speak about uh, people disrupting and, and showing bias, let's speak about Dalian uh, Porfu. The Midday Report. Let's pop over to New York. Tzidi, my dear, is there. Have you been able to uh, chip away the sleep, Tzidi? Good afternoon, Jane. I'm barely waking up. Um, <laughs> as you know, it is still quite early. It's about 6, 7 in the morning. So I'm getting ready to head down to the area where the lower courts are here in Manhattan just to see what activity is happening there. I'm a stone's throw away from Trump Towers, and I don't think that there's been much activity overnight. I think you'd know this. And I said this to Mandy earlier. The interesting thing about New Yorkers is they want to get on with their lives. Mm. They're not necessarily interested in things that are not about themselves. So there's not too much fanfare around here. But I imagine that you will definitely see Trump supporters as he makes his way to the courts, um, escorted by the police and secret service some hours from now. Now, you might ascertain that I'm speaking to Tzidi about Donald Trump. He is about to, well, as you say, in a couple of hours or so, appear in court. I mean, this is a historic move. His lawyer said yesterday that the country is on the eve of destruction. Do you get the sense, Tzidi, that this could go horribly wrong? No, I don't think so. Um, Look, I was in Florida, and again, I told Manny, I was in Florida when the story broke. Florida, as you know, is a Republican state. It's a red state. So the level of uh, tension is definitely felt in that part of the country where people do feel that it is political. People are quite upset. But yeah, um, New York doesn't necessarily love Trump. There's history and there's tension from the past, and people are kind of happy to see some movement, that there was something that the DA thinks that he could make stick as far as Trump is concerned. So people are quite um, are quite optimistic that this will go somewhere. Mm-hmm. But I do think what muddies the waters is the fact that he is leading as far as the the race to become the Republican candidate ahead of next year's elections are concerned. But on the eve of destruction, I don't think so. Um, there have also been very stern warnings, Jane, from the police, this side and Mayor Eric Adams in New York saying they've taken the necessary precautions. They don't want nonsense. They want people to behave in their city. Of course, Jane, this comes with January 6th in mind um, when he was elected out of office. So they are slightly, I think, jittery maybe, Worried that there might be an attempt by mega supporters to do something, mm. but the, they're not taking chances at all. Tell us more about the charges that he's facing. So it's a little bit tricky at the moment because that indictment is still concealed. Mm. It'll be unsealed when it's handed over to him. But speculation is that these are plus minus 30 charges that are linked to his rise to presidency. Of course, this at the heart of it includes hush money that was paid to film adult film star Stormy Daniels. And again, they've been trying to find something to stick to Donald Trump for so long. Think about how many impeachment trials have happened, Jane. So this is an all-out war on the Democrats' part if you may, 
to try and bring Trump to book to get some justice against many of the wrongs that he's done. But with that, because America is such a divided, such a polarized society, you've got people on the other end complaining that this is purely, again, political because of the elections. And part of the difficulty, I think, is when you've got a prosecutor, like the one that you have now, who is a well-known Democrat, so he's a blue prosecutor, and that makes things slightly difficult. I mean, Trump himself has been speaking a little bit now about um, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg saying that, you know, that this is... Um, first of all, he spoke about the indictment that was leaked, saying that, you know, it's illegally leaked, um, illegally leaked rather various points, um, complete information saying that this is a pathetic indictment and that the prosecutor himself should be indicted immediately. Um, yeah, saying that, yeah, again, it's illegal, that there, this doesn't surprise him, that there's no crime by Trump. What he thinks is actually this whole saga is a mess and that Bragg instead should resign with immediate effect. So Trump is absolutely milking all of this for political experience. As I said, he has indicated he wants to come back into power. He's the leading candidate uh, as far as the Republican voters concerned. He's most likely to emerge. In fact, I think I must very quickly mention to you, Jane, that mm. some people are seeing this as an opportunity to try and support Trump next year, including people from, from as far as Burkina Faso and India who have obviously become citizens in, in this, in this country. You know, he is a master at milking opportunities, and I suspect he's going uh, to do the same. We're going to be speaking to you throughout this CD. Thank you very much for waking up super early to talk to us. The Midday Report. Cybercrime, it's definitely on the increase in South Africa and beyond. The CSIR has just released cybercrime stats. Let's go over to our Cape Town studio and speak to Kevin Brunt there, Eyewitness News reporter. Tell us what you found. Very good afternoon to you, Jane. Well, the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, the experts within their Cyber Security Research Center, has released data saying that South Africa ranks number six in the world for cybercrime density, also saying that cybercrime costs the economy an estimated 2.2 billion rand per annum. And they Mm. say this ranking... um, could be much higher, saying that it is quite optimistic, also saying that we ate most targeted country in the world for ransomware. So here's the CSIR cybersecurity systems expert, Billy Petzer, and he earlier gave the update with regard to their study, Jane. In the past year, more than half of South African firms were impacted by ransomware. And these are only the statistics that we know about. Some estimates place that at much higher. And then, according to Sabric, um, the total losses in digital banking um, in South Africa has increased by about 25%. Things like SIM swap fraud has increased by 63% since 2021. Things that go unreported, cyber extortion, sextortion, cyberbullying, these things impact the person on the street, the individual. They often tend to not report these things, but the estimates are quite worrying in how prevalent these kinds of incidents are. Uh, worrying, isn't it? I mean, how widespread this is, Kevin. I mean, we eighth in the world when it comes to uh, not doing very well on that front. Any idea how much this is costing us? 
Um, they gave an estimate, uh, economic estimate for the country at about 2.2 billion rand, Jane, but also saying um, that there are a number of reasons as to why South Africa, you know, is so exposed when it comes to the issue of cybersecurity, talking mm-hmm. about the complex socioeconomic landscape in the country, um, referring to the fact that we are um, the most unequal country in the world. We have high levels of poverty as well as unemployment coupled with crime rate a vulnerable population, easy targets. Also, with the adoption of technology, um, most people over 90%. Um, the study shows uh, have a smartphone and they have access to um, technologies that make it easy for uh, these cyber attackers then to infiltrate some of the people's systems. Also, not a lot of good news coming um, for business. Um, Sabric says that the total gross losses in digital banking in South Africa increased by 45%. Also saying mm. that cyber extortion, sextortion and cyber bullet uh, bullying, as you've heard in that clip, um, often goes unreported. But they've also in the same breath mentioned a lot of the technologies and um, innovation that the CSIR is busy with to try and address the issue and buffer the public, but also businesses in the country against such attacks, Jane. And the message to all of us, I mean, any tips on how we can protect ourselves? Definitely, once again, as repeated before, Jane, uh, changing your passwords as often as you can um, and not to share personal details unless you obviously have to and you verified where the information is going, um, not to share those details online. But in particular, you know, in, in short, saying that it is work in progress, also talking a lot about the job opportunities within cybersecurity in the country itself. It's something that these experts say haven't enjoyed a lot of attention and also uh, wanting companies to invest more in training and development, but also saying government um, should also then come to the party with regard to education, but saying that it is a collective approach between parents, educational institutions, the private as well as the public sector to then um, address the issue. If we want to find out more, if anyone wants to find out more about these stats, how do they find them? The statistics will be on the website of the CSIR, the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. Here at Eyewitness News, I also have a copy, which will then be later be available on EWN's website, Jane, where people can go and, and peruse some of the details in finer detail. All right, so we seem to be urged, pushed along here to get our act into gear. We are the eighth worst in the world, most vulnerable. Kevin Brunt, thank you for that. The Midday Report. That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener. The Midday Report.